going to talk more about going deeper. So do we have that slide presentation? Um, during the month of July, Pastor Tim has been teaching us on going deeper, and it's a continual theme here at the church. So for today, I'd like to speak to you about one of my favorite subjects, the kingdom of God. So if you know much about me, I'm always teaching about prayer and prophecy, but more importantly, it's about the kingdom. My wife and I, when we first got saved, we weren't saved into a church. We had leaders that birthed us into the kingdom. And so our perspective, our mindset, our viewpoint has always been focused on the kingdom. And all the time, my thought is continually on the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. So today, I just want to explain to you what I mean by that and how it's affected my life and how hopefully as we go forward as a church, we're not just C3-minded, we're not just IFCA-minded, but our viewpoint, our outlook, our ministry is focused on the kingdom of God. Amen? So the scripture that I'm using today comes from Luke chapter 17. And it's when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees, and the scripture starts out by saying, once I'm being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the, kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's very important to understand what Jesus was saying and who he was saying it to. And so this morning we're going to look at that and what exactly I mean by kingdom of God. So first, let's start by looking at terms. So the definition of the word kingdom simply means a country, a state, or a territory that's ruled by a king or a queen, right? That's common sense. We've all learned that. And so we understand that definition of a kingdom. But there's a second one that talks about uh, the spiritual reign or the authority of God. And I suspect Jesus was talking more about definition number two than definition one. And the Pharisees were looking at definition one, looking, where's this kingdom? You know, where's your castle? Where's your princesses? Where's your horses? Where's your knights? That kind of thing, right? And they weren't seeing it. They weren't getting it. Can you show us on a map where this kingdom is? And Jesus says, it's not like that. You're not going to be able to see it. You're not going to be able to know where it is. It's not geographical. It's, It's much more than that. And so many people look at um, Jesus' words and, and they try to understand what they mean because it's not geographical. So if you were to punch in the GPS coordinates, you won't find it. It doesn't <laughs> exist on a map. And so that's what he's trying to say. You can't spot it. You can't observe it. And he says, you don't know the timing of it because you're staring it right in the face. It's here right now. You're in the midst of it. You're in the middle of it. And you can't even figure that out. Now, some people talk about the kingdom of God not just being in the midst or among, but some people interpret as the kingdom of God is within you. So some Bible translations will say within you. But I don't subscribe to that, and I'm not one of those people that likes to dive into the Greek and the Hebrew because I use a more common sense approach. Does it make sense or not? I don't have to go down that trail Hardly ever. You know, there's been a few times when I've had to try to understand the roots and the origin of the word. That's okay. But, but sometimes it's just common sense, right? So when Jesus said that to them, 
that it's within you. And that uh, uh, translation, I don't really agree with that because who was he talking to? He was talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. And this is what he said to them on other occasions. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. So I don't think he was saying, hey, the kingdom of God is inside of you because he saw what was inside of them, greed and wickedness. Now we understand as New Testament believers that have the Holy Spirit living within us, it's a different story, right? But in this particular scripture, this particular instance, he's talking about the Spirit of God being among them or around them in the surrounding area. Basically, he's saying it's right here. It's me. It's, it's, it's right in front of you. And so, how do I know that? Let's look at everything that Jesus talked about the kingdom. So we're going to go through this, and we're going to talk about Jesus' assignment as it was prophesied by John the Baptist. Then the next part is Jesus proclaiming his assignment, his understanding of what he was brought to earth to do. Then what was it he preached? How did Jesus preach? You know, so many times we talk about the gospel of salvation, and it's very important. The last hundred years, we've been preaching the gospel of salvation, but it's just part of the message, isn't it? Because the gospel is much bigger than our salvation. The gospel is inclusive of all the kingdom. And so it's very important that we begin to communicate and understand that because I think some of the disservice that we've done is we have people believe that if you have your salvation, you're good to go. That's all you need to know. You got your ticket for the end time bus, and that's all that matters. And you can live any way you want until the end of time. Just make sure you got that insurance card punched. And so that's a subset that's important. Don't anybody leave here thinking I'm saying that salvation isn't important. It's very important, but it's just part of the message. Even when we take communion, there's two parts, right? There's the bread and the wine. The wine represents the blood or the salvation and the redemption, but the bread is for our healing, for right now, for the here and now, and it represents everything God did for our life here on earth. And so we have to understand that. So what did Jesus preach? Um, what did Jesus' disciples teach? What was their teaching about? Was it just the message of salvation, or was it greater? Was it the gospel of the kingdom? What did Jesus pray? How did he pray? Um, what did Jesus reject? And then finally, what did Jesus prophesy? So let's break this down and look at it, because we're missing a major source of our power because we don't understand the full message that Jesus came to teach. So the first thing was his assignment was prophesied. In Matthew, it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So John, a forerunner, John went ahead of Jesus, right? And he said, Get ready, man. It's coming. It's on its way. It's here now. Prepare yourselves, because the kingdom of heaven is upon you. And he was speaking of what? Jesus, right? And so he's trying to level set everybody to say, prepare yourselves, it's on its way. Next, Jesus himself proclaims his assignment. We all know the story that when he went into the synagogue, when he went into the temple, and he asked the attendant for the Isaiah scroll, and he rolls out the scroll, and he reads the scripture, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's amazing because it's not just about salvation, right? It was about other issues that Jesus came specifically to address. And he told them, those in, in, within my hearing, you're witnessing the fulfillment of this prophecy right now, right in front of your face. And that was blasphemy, wasn't it? Those Pharisees lost their mind when he said this because he's telling them, I'm the guy. I'm, I'm who Isaiah was talking about. So Jesus didn't just quote the scriptures. He went about and did these very things. He was very adamant about doing his assignment. So much so that when John the Baptist was in prison, he told his disciples, hey, go ask Jesus, are you really the one? Are you the guy? And Jesus said, go tell John what you see. I'm healing the sick. I'm giving sight to the blind. I'm giving hearing to the deaf. The lame are walking. He goes, that's evidence. That's proof of I am who I say that I am. And so it's amazing what Jesus proclaimed about his very assignment. What Jesus preached. Luke says, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because this is why I was sent. So what was his message? What was he talking about? The kingdom of God, right? And he said, so much so that I can't just stay in one place. I have to keep moving. I have to keep going. I have to keep imparting this message to all the towns in this, in this region because that's why God sent me. If you look in the New Testament, you'll find 109 references to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. There's 75 references to the kingdom of God and 35 references to the kingdom of heaven. And again, to me, it's one of those things that's a common sense thing that they mean the same thing. Some people will try to split a hair and say they're different, but for common sense sake, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven are synonymous, right? They mean the exact same thing. And so, can you imagine there's 109 scriptures talking about this? Do you think it's important? Do you think it's uh, a subject that we should be really studying? So when was the last time you sat down and really did a study to help yourself understand what exactly is the kingdom of God? And I'll tell you what, if you take the time to do it, it's really rich. And we begin to see that the signs and the wonders and the miracles and all the things that Jesus did and all the things that Jesus taught were centered around bringing the kingdom of God to bear in, in that time and that day and from that point forward into our dispensation as well. What did Jesus' disciples teach? Acts 19 says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. So again, what did he say that he taught? Not about the kingdom of salvation, again, part of it, but a greater picture of the kingdom of God, which uh, shows us the authority that we have, the level that we should be living at, the things that have been imparted to us, and I know some of you here are doing that very thing, and that's awesome, but we have to up our game. We all have to be operating at that level. We have to raise our vision, lift our vision higher, so that we're in a place where we're imparting this kingdom, and it becomes part of our message in everything we say and do. First Corinthians 
Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So that's amazing, because he's saying, I didn't try to psychologically or mentally assent and try to convince you in your head, but I tried to show you through your eye gate, through your heart gate, that I am who I say that I am, that we have that power and authority, and that the kingdom of God is near. It is here right now. And so Paul himself said, I didn't go the route of the head. I went the route of evidence. And so what evidence is in your life showing people that the power of God is on you? I remember so many times um, when I worked at General Motors in our Bible studies on our lunch hours, we'd go into a conference room and we had one sister in particular. I loved every time it was her week to preach because all she would do is recite scripture. She didn't have an outline. She didn't do one of these uh, types of preaching where it was line by line, precept by precept. She just machine-gunned the word. And it was amazing because she'd start off slow and soft and she'd get a little bit louder and she'd get a little bit more passionate and it just kept going and going. So much so that all of a sudden there'd always be a knock on the door and it would be one of the secretaries, guys, guys, keep it down. Because <laughs> it was just getting so explosive because it's contagious, isn't it? And that's what we should be doing. We should be making people feel the gravity and the weight of the kingdom. Whenever we walk into a room, the atmosphere should change and it should just amp up people's expectation that God is surely with us. You ever been around someone that has no faith or tried to pray with someone that had very little faith? Um, I know when I do hospital visitations or I go to visit the sick and, and someone's with me that has no faith, it's, it's hard. You can see why Jesus told some of the people to leave the room when he was trying to raise the little girl that was dead, right? He said, man, you guys, please just leave. If you don't have the faith for this, it's going to be harder because what does it do? It drags down the spiritual atmosphere, doesn't it? You want people in the room that believe that when you pray that the heavens move, that God shows up, that you bring the kingdom to bear in every single situation. And that's where I want to be at. And that's what the disciples are teaching. That's why Paul said, I didn't try to convince you with wise arguments because so many times we try to do that. And some people you might be able to win over like that, but the majority of the people want to see that God is alive and he's real and he can show up in, in an instant. Amen? So then what did Jesus pray? His disciples said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And this is what he prayed. Listen to how this prayer starts off. We all know it. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What a great way to start a prayer. Because that's the heart, is to bring the kingdom to bear. The earthly realm should reflect the heavenly realm. And the heavenly realm should reflect the earthly realm. They should mirror one another. One of my uh, hobbies is photography. I, I love photography. And sometimes you'll get a landscape and it'll be really nice because you'll get a great reflection. So sometimes when you're taking a landscape of a lake and trees, and sometimes when the water is almost like glass, but there's still enough of a ripple, sometimes photographers will flip the image upside down. Have you ever seen that before? Because what it does, it really messes with your, your mind. It really messes with your eyes. Because you'll look at that photograph and you'll say, that's a nice photograph, but something off. 
I just don't understand what it is. And sometimes I'll post on my Instagram account, you know, maybe an upside down image. And it takes a while, and then someone will spot it, and they'll say, ah, it's upside down. But, but it's a mirror image, isn't it? It's just slightly off. But if you do that, it's a great effect because, like I said, your mind knows something's not quite right, but what is it? And so the earthly realm and the heavenly realm should be a reflection of one another. And we know the heaven is perfect, the earthly is a little imperfect. So when you see that flipped image, you say, wait, the imperfect's on top, the perfect's on the bottom. And so when you flip it back around, your mind makes more sense of it. Amen? So try that on somebody if you've got a really good reflection photo. It, it uh, really mess them up. So next thing, what did Jesus reject? Because a lot of times we know people by what they profess and what they preach, but sometimes it's what you don't say or sometimes it's what you don't partake in or sometimes it's what you stand against that helps define someone as well, right? So a lot of politicians do this. I'm for this, but I'm against that. And so Jesus was against this. Um, Listen to what Luke says. He says, The devil led him, being Jesus, up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. Right? That's the counter kingdom. Jesus was all about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so here's the enemy saying, Hey, check out my kingdom. This is the kingdom of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus tried to get Jesus to forfeit the kingdom of God for the kingdom of this world. And you know what? That's a bad trade. That's a bad deal, right? Jesus said, No, that stinks. I'm not... I'm not touching that one. I don't want any part of that. Why would I give up the greater thing for the lesser thing? But how many of us do that on a daily basis, right? The enemy is constantly baiting us. He's constantly switching us. He's constantly getting us to trade down. And God is trying to always get us to trade up. So every day you have to focus your heart. Every day you have to ask yourself, what kingdom am I serving? You know, am I sold out to the kingdom of this world? Is it all the things and the nicer and finer things that the earth has to offer that I'm caught up in? Is it about boats and cars and motorcycles and all those things or women, whatever you're into? But, but, um, you know, are those things that we're trading our security and our, our desire to be a kingdom servant for? Or are we really sold out to the, the way of God? And Jesus saw this and he saw the switch that Satan was proposing and he said, absolutely not, no way. I'll never do that. And so we have to have that resolve, don't we? We have to get that place in our heart where all these things of earth are strangely dim. It's like, it doesn't matter to me. I don't need those things. What I need is to follow God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then lastly, Jesus prophesies the future kingdom. And we know he used parables. There's a ton of parables that start off with the kingdom of God is like right? So if you do this study, like I said, if you look up those 109 verses, many of them start off with the kingdom of God is like, and he wants us to understand exactly what it is that we're signing up for, exactly what it is that's at our disposal. So in Mark, he says, again, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like, or what parable shall we use to describe it? 
It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that birds can perch in its shade. So Jesus went on to explain to them that he's that seed, and he had to die. He had to be planted in the ground so that he could bear these huge branches, so that he could provide shade for, for all those you know, we're doing that Psalm 91-1 prayer right now under the shadow of his wings. And so this little mustard seed is about to become the greatest tree of all. And, you know, you look at that puny little thing, and that's what the um, Pharisees were doing, right? They're looking at him and kind of mocking him, saying, when is your kingdom going to come? And they had no idea that little mustard seed that was born in Bethlehem, that was from Judea, that little man in their eyes was going to become this greatest tree of all. Amen? So this quote really, really got me because I think it summarizes everything this verse is trying to say because the kingdom of heaven isn't just a location. It's a person. I'm going to say that again because that is amazing. The kingdom of heaven isn't just a location. It's a person. If you can get your mind around that, I remember when I read that the first time, it was like a depth charge going off. Because that's exactly what Jesus was saying to those Pharisees. He said, you're not going to figure this out. You're not going to see it. You're not going to be able to find it. You're not going to put your feet on it. You can't touch it because it's me. I'm right here. It's all about me. And so if you want to live and experience the kingdom, it's all about relationship. It's all about knowing God. It's all about intimacy with God. So if you want to enter a kingdom, you get into that prayer closet and you start seeking out his voice. You start listening for him, and all of a sudden, he starts showing you all of his ways. You know, we talked earlier about Asaph, and he says, I want to know your ways. I want to meditate on your deeds. And that's what Moses said, Lord, teach me your ways. I want to know everything there is to know about you. And God said, you can't handle it. I'll show you my backside, but that's as close as you get, because I am so big and so magnificent. But we have Jesus, right? We have a God who is the all-knowable God. I know so many times when I've witnessed to Muslims or Hindus or maybe people who are Buddhists and they just can't get their head around the fact that our God is a knowable God. He's not this entity in a faraway place. In this place in the heavenlies, he's here. He's as close as a whisper. He's in that next dimension and we can hear his voice each and every day. We can hear his voice in each and every situation. And I don't know about you, but I want my heart and my ears and my sight to be so tuned in that I see him in every single thing. And it's just an amazing place to live when you begin to live in that kingdom. But here's the conflict. The conflict, especially if you talk to theologians, especially if you talk to people who want to approach God through their head, because they keep talking about um, this kingdom um, that is now and not yet. And they actually word it that way. They'll actually have position papers on how can there be a kingdom that is now and not yet. And they use that uh, sentence to try to debunk the people who are talking about the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now. But to me it's very easy because I think of a, a woman who might be pregnant, right? She's a mom but not yet a mom. I remember when my daughter was pregnant, 
And she was, she was a mom. She was every bit of a mom because what was she doing? She was preparing the nursery. She was getting the bottles ready. She was getting the diapers ready. She was getting the nursery ready. That's everything a mom does, right? A mom is preparing for that child, for all that child's needs. So she was a mom, but not yet a mom. And so that's how it is with the kingdom. We're in this kingdom, but not yet the kingdom of God. And I remember we used to um, take a group of people and we pray on 8 Mile outside the abortion clinic. And we'd be praying for those women going in there to get an abortion. And I don't say this to condemn anybody, because if you had an abortion, you understand that God offers and extends forgiveness. But I just know that when we would stand out there and pray, we would just stand on the sidewalk, lined up shoulder to shoulder, praying. And then the first 30 feet into the clinic, the Catholics and the sidewalk counselors owned that territory. They told us, you guys are free to be here, but this is our zone. Stay over there and pray. And we would. We, we weren't interested in trying to twist arms or anything like that, but I would just sit there in awe of their techniques and their tactics because these women would come in there and they hated protesters. They hated people out there praying because they thought it was infringing on their right. And you can understand that if that's their mindset, right? But as they come in, they would be very militant. They'd be very flippant. And sometimes they would literally give you some hand gestures or they would walk in with just this cocky confidence or just like they were going into a banquet and every time, without fail, one of the counselors would say, good morning, mom. Whoa. These women who were marching in as strident as could be every time, there would be a stutter in their step. There would be a hesitation in their step because they weren't ready for that. And that statement would just cold cock them every time because they don't consider the fact that in that moment of time, they were a mom. And their last words to those girls going in that clinic as that door was closing, I'm praying for you, mom, and for your baby. And sometimes those women would turn around and come out. And I'm not saying they didn't have their abortion. They could have came back another day. I don't know. But all I know is that particular day, it got to them. It caused them to ponder, right? Amen. But, but the, the point is, they were moms, but not yet moms, right? And so then they'd have to live with that uh, decision that they made. And if you talk to any women that made that decision, a lot of times there's a lot of regret, regret associated with it. And we would see the effects of it, you know, standing outside that clinic, and we'd see them going in one way and coming out another way. And just the anguish that, that they would struggle, you know, they would be instantaneous. But it was a, a rich opportunity to minister the love of God. Amen? Okay. So, how then should we live? If we truly believe that we lived in the midst of the kingdom, and we truly thought about the gospel of the kingdom, we would be really clear on one thing. Our destiny is to go to heaven but our assignment is to bring heaven to earth. And sometimes we confuse those two, right? We confuse the destination with the assignment. I learned this valuable lesson on the first couple of vacations my wife and I took because I was a destination guy. I was taught you get to your destination as fast as you can. My dad would stop at a gas station and you had until that tank was full to go to the bathroom, find yourself a snack, get back in the car, before he took off. It was literally like a NASCAR pit stop. 
And that's how I was brought up, because the vacation started when you got there. And so my first vacation with my wife, oh, let's stop here and get a Starbucks, and let's go here. Oh, they sell cheese here. You know, it was just, it was maddening, <laughs> because we, we would never get there. And I just like, I want to just be on vacation. And I didn't understand for her, vacation started two months before when you, when you looked at the map and you looked at the AAA guidebooks and, and all that. That was vacation. And so I had to learn to relax and lighten up and not confuse the destination with the journey. And so we have to do the same thing, don't we? Because so many of us think, oh, I got my ticket in. I, I got my salvation. Now I just sit back and I coast into the end. That's not the way it's meant to be. It's meant to be. We enjoy every step of the way. We enjoy the journey. We start moving in the prophetic. We start praying. We start witnessing. Some of you are evangelists. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are prophets. That's why we're up here all the time trying to get you to discover your gifts and what your assignment is so that you can be active in doing it right now, not waiting until you get into the heavenly realm. It's for the here and now. So Jesus has given us all this authority to do it. His assignment should be our assignment. We should be casting out demons, healing the sick, right? Yeah. Preaching the gospel wherever we go. And I love this saying uh, by Bill Johnson. He says, to defer the kingdom of God to a future dispensation is irresponsible. I'm going to say that again because that's huge. To defer the kingdom of God to a future dispensation is irresponsible. So for us to say, hey, I got my salvation, I'm good to go, I don't have to worry about another thing, that's, that's terrible. That's a terrible mindset, isn't it? Uh, you know, you worry about yourself, you get there however you can get there, but I'm not responsible for that. But God teaches us we're responsible because relationships is all we can take with us as other people in our relationship with God. And so we have to really understand that that is part of our responsibility. We can't just shuffle it off and say, that was then, this is now, too bad, so sad. Or, it is what it is. No, it's not. We have a responsibility in this thing, and we need to start walking in it. We need to activate. We need to start encouraging each other. That's why I love working with the prophetic team, because their task, their goal, is to constantly find the gold in everybody that comes into those prophecy rooms, everybody they talk to, I don't know about you, but my mind is like, okay, God. And we teach them questions like, what Bible character is this guy like? What's their spiritual gift? Who does God say they are? What's their reputation in heaven? What's that all about? It's trying to help them to find their kingdom mandate, their kingdom calling, their kingdom assignment, so they get going and start doing things that God has preordained for them to do. So the kingdom of God is here and now. I don't know about you, but I needed, I needed really to know that God was a here and now God. Because when I accepted the Lord back in 1986, I was Catholic in my upbringing, so I understood heaven, I understood hell, I understood who Jesus Christ was, didn't have a personal relationship with him, but I also had the understanding that I was fairly good, so my chances of going up were better than going down. And so that was my understanding. So, I mean, I didn't really have much motivation other than that. But what I did have is I had a life that was falling apart. I had a lot of issues. I had a lot of problems. And what interested me when these men told me, 
God is alive. God is well. God is able to help you out of any situation that you're in. He's your ever-present help in time of trouble. Guess what? I could sign up. That's the gospel I wanted to sign up for. That's the gospel I want to impart to other people, not just salvation, which, again, super important, right? Someday you're going, to be saved, you're going to be saved and you're going to go to heaven. Awesome. But what about right now? What about my problems today? What about the addictions? Or what about the health issues? Or what about the, the uh, relationship issues that I'm suffering from? You're telling me that God can intervene right, right now? Absolutely. And that's what interested me. And that's what a dying world wants to hear, right? They want to hear about heaven for sure but they're more motivated on their issues and their problems of today and to know that they can enlist God in that. So in closing, I just want to share with you uh, two stories real quick. And um, these just blew me away because these give me hope for the future. And I love testimonies. Testimonies are so important. So this first young man, uh, Mitch Pardo, some of you might know Mitchell. He doesn't go to this church, but he's definitely a kingdom leader. He's a young man. He's about 25 and he starts off by uh, quoting Isaiah 40. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's an awesome scripture, isn't it? And God's going to straighten it all out, no doubt. And so this is what Mitchell says. This is his take, his commentary on that scripture. He says, I love the fact that this prophecy has only been partly fulfilled. The fullness will come to pass when all flesh shall see it together. We live in amazing days. Can you imagine a 25-year-old with this perspective? We live in amazing days. The coming days will be challenging, but incredibly glorious and rewarding. God is raising up another generation of Nazarites who don't kneel to the status quo. Wow. Man, can you imagine that? I don't know about you guys. I'm so sick of the status quo. I'm so sick of the apathy. I'm so sick of just the coasting. Man, what if we lived a different way? What if we lived like this young man is saying? What if the status quo was our enemy and we say, never again, we're raising the bar. We're bringing excitement back into the earth. We're showing the world that our God is alive. So they don't kneel to the status quo. They're not swayed by the opinions of man. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sick of the opinions of man. I don't know about you, but everybody's got an opinion, and most of them are crazy. And, but the thing is, is, you start falling for it, don't you? you know? I, I don't know about you, but I love to study conspiracy theories. I, I, don't, I don't know why I'm into it, but I'm into it. And, but... The thing about it is you'll read one and you're like, wow, that's kind of plausible. Yeah, I think I remember that happening or that makes sense, right? And then you click on the next one and it's like, oh, totally refutes the first one. But you think, oh, that's plausible. That makes sense. And you can get caught up in that all day, can't you? But they're not fact. They're not data. They're not, they're not evidence. They're opinions. And so we get so caught up in these opinions of men. And so this young man, Mitchell saying. I don't want to be caught up in that. I don't want to kneel to that. He says, and won't settle for anything less than God's glory being revealed to all. This man wants to see everybody experiencing God's glory. He says, these fierce lovers, 
though unconventional and considered eccentric to many. You know, young people, don't ever apologize for being different. Don't ever apologize for your methods, for being unconventional. That's what we need. We need people to be unconventional. We need people to think outside the box. And uh, uh, grown-ups and older people, we need to encourage that. Because you know what? They're going to show us a lot of things. I don't know about you, but I want to hang out with this 25-year-old, you know, because he's unconventional. He's thinking and seeing things in a different way, and that's going to get me pumped up because I never considered some of the things that he's considered. And maybe I might have something to teach him. So he says, these fierce lovers, although unconventional and considered eccentric, will confront darkness head-on with the light of Christ and turn many hearts back to the Father. That's awesome. So then this I came across on Friday. Um, Judy Wright puts out a report um, on the prayer tent every week, and this one just got to me because the word of our testimony is how we defeat the enemy, right? So listen to this. She says, the summer heat dominated the days as the Lord provided moments of restoration and refreshment. We witnessed the, move, we witnessed the movement of the Holy Spirit as four young teens approached the area. Just before reaching the driveway, they dropped to their knees and bowed their heads. After a while, these young boys came alongside the gazebo and stated, your sign said we should stop and pray. Amen. Stop and pray. So we did, and we prayed for you as well. That's the restoration of hope for the future when you witness 13 to 14-year-olds in obedience to the Lord. Can you imagine that? Amen. What if that was your day to be on assignment? What if that was your day to be signed up for the gazebo and you called in sick or saw oh, Judy, I can't make it today? What would you have missed out on? You know, seeing these, these four young men drop to their knees and just start worshiping God, and you're there to pray for them, but they're praying for you. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the open heaven that we're praying for, right? I saw that firsthand in Toronto and some of the other revivals that I've been in experience of when the power of God is so thick in an area that there's an open heaven and these boys just couldn't help but obey that sign that they just stopped and dropped to their knees in instant obedience. I remember pulling into Toronto and, and people on the side of the road because they couldn't get their cars quite to the airport vineyard to be able to experience the revival because they were having revival on 401, the highway leading into Toronto or Cane Ridge, Kentucky, when you read some of the reports of that revival, when men and women were coming to Cane Ridge in their horse-drawn carriages and wagons, and they had to pull them over and quarter their horses for them and just stack the people on the side of the road. They said it was like stacking cordwood because the Spirit of God, the open heaven over that area, was so thick because the kingdom of God had drawn near. Amen? I don't know about you guys, but I long for that day. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. Lord, we just pray right now that we would begin to experience that open heaven. Lord, that we would be done with the lesser things, that we would determine in our hearts and purpose in our hearts to bring the kingdom of God to bear in our schools, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches. Lord, wherever we go, that people would witness and experience your awesome miracle working power. In Jesus' name, amen.